1: I get back to Drew and all my mates are there. Oh she's back in town. Yeah, come and have a drink with us. And I couldn't say no, so I'm back in the pub, leaving my partner, leaving my son, and back drinking with the boys. And I look back and think, oh my goodness, she had every right to leave me. And so she did. She she said, I can't do this, you're not a you're not a father, you just the boys are too important. She left me, she took my little boy, and my life crumbled at that stage.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have part three of our special six-part series focusing on how God chooses some of the most unlikely people to do some of the most remarkable things in His Kingdom. And that is certainly the case today. Last time, we heard the conclusion of Helen Marsh's story, which she's written about in her book called Up Out of Egypt. It's basically about how she gave up her baby for adoption when she was only 14 years old and then was reunited with her daughter, Jan, 29 years later. But in addition to Jan, Helen had four other children that she raised herself, including our guest today. Jeff Marsh has an equally compelling story of his own. So here's Jeff having a chat and sharing his story with Eric Scadabo in part three of our six-part series.
2: Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you. And I guess we could call today's program, The Marsh Story, The Next Generation. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Sounds good to
1: me. (laughs) It's quite a story.
2: That's right. So before we get to your story, let's go back to your mother's story. Did you know when you were growing up that she had this background and that you had a sister out there somewhere?
1: Um, Mum had kept it from us until one day uh, there was a family meeting and mum called the whole family together, and we were a bit nervous because it, it was a serious family meeting. Did you have she, any idea
2: what it was going to be No about?
1: idea. Actually, I thought it might have been mum's going to tell us she's got cancer because it was pretty yeah, serious. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and she got us all together, and I can clearly picture what it was like. It was just so vivid in my mind. She gets all the family, and, and she says, I've got a daughter, you've got a sister, and uh, she wants to meet us.
2: Wow, and what did so, you think?
1: Uh, actually, it was really interesting that... All the kids were different. My sister was overwhelmed and loved the idea. Because
2: your she, sister, Sharon, always yeah, wanted a sister. She
1: always wanted a sister. Yeah. So, she was in awe. Yeah. Um, my brother was not too bad, and I wanted to take off. Had had no idea how to deal with it. Just wanted to oh, take really? off and not, not deal with it at all. Didn't know how to deal with this stuff.
2: Why did you react that way?
1: Uh, I don't know. I probably just couldn't picture my mum having another child, us not knowing this other child. Mm. And... I don't think I dealt with that sort of stuff real well at a, mm. at that young age. So uh, I'm a runner. I just take off and block out.
2: Yes, and that plays a part in your story.
1: It does. It does. I was a runner. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, we're,
2: we'll get to that. Okay. But let's start off. You were born and raised in Mulgrave on the eastern side of Melbourne.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Spent the first um, fifteen years in Mulgrave, and I always say um, had a really good upbringing. Mum, dad, awesome parents. Uh, probably mum spent most of her time investing in us and dad was the worker that goes away and, mm-hmm. and provides. My dad was an amazing man that took me to sport, loved my sport and really backed us as kids in some of that stuff.
2: And then you eventually moved out of Mulgrave?
1: Yep. So I uh, always wanted to be a carpenter and work with my hands. And so went to a tech school to actually get skilled up. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of 15 and a half, finished up... Um, fourth form, year 10, and um, and then my uncle said he'd give me an apprenticeship, but it was up in Druin, so I would need to leave home, leave the family home, go up and live in Druin during the week and then come home on weekends to mum and dad. So it was a massive step.
2: So you had a drastic change. You went from city living to country living.
1: Yeah, it was was massive because he's this fairly insecure, quiet city kid going country to start an apprenticeship and live with uncle, auntie and cousin. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yep. So you had to start all over as far as making friends and everything. Mm. How did that go?
1: Um, yeah. I probably coped okay. Cause I love the carpentry. So I got stuck into the apprenticeship and really enjoyed living with my uncle and auntie, but my, my cousin, who was a couple of years older than me, he was pretty entrenched in the local town and the guy all the guys, all the boys. And so he was already experimenting with booze a fair bit and he'd take me under his wing and look after little cuz and so I would just tag along with him. That probably the beginnings of mm-hmm. Jeff starting to explore this crazy mixed up life.
2: So at first that must have been a good thing, so you have somebody kinda of looking out for you.
1: Mm, it was it but, was
2: but then what happened
1: yeah so i, I might just go back a step so mm-hmm. even as a young guy um probably 12 i was starting to surf and mum would mum would take us surfing and i'd spend some time down at Thaggy with a mate with his family and we'd head off and even at 12 13 we were exploring alcohol then So we'd go and and have some drinks and um, drink too much and and get a bit smashed. And so from sort of 13, 14, 15, they were still even experimenting with booze years. Mm. and So then when I land in Druin as almost a 16-year-old and my cousin's drinking and I'm insecure, it made sense that as I tagged along with him, the drink just got more and more. And uh, it certainly didn't feel like it was out of control at that stage because I would work during the week really enjoy the apprenticeship, mm. love that side of stuff, and then just go out on weekends and get smashed. So like that 16, was the pattern. 17, 18. And again, sort of dates don't mean too much, but I know that the next few years um, it just got more and more and more because as, as a young guy trying to fit in, and I couldn't, I had no voice, so I absolutely was so shy that the only way I could start to um, have a chat with people was have three or four cans. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I had a voice and people would laugh at me and I fit into this country town that I liked it. So I'd have a few more cans Mm. and then a few more cans and all of a sudden uh, I'm getting drunk and felt like I slotted into this town and this environment really well.
2: And what else was happening in your life at that time?
1: Oh, so I was playing football. So, um, and I loved that. I uh, signed up for the drill and footy club, and was playing. Started off reserves grade, and then started playing senior, senior football. And it was pretty good footy. And in amongst that, everyone drinks in a, in a footy club in uh, a local uh, just country a town. Everyone drinks, yeah. and so you play footy on the Saturday, uh, win or lose, you get smashed on Saturday night. We have Sunday sippers. So Sunday morning, you're presenting back at the club. And having drinks at 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it's it was, I, I guess I learned how to do that pretty quick. And so then Sunday, I'm smashed. Most of the day Sunday, we're smashed. Got to get ready for work again Monday. Mm-hmm. And so wake up Monday morning a bit seedy. You'd get through the week okay, looking forward to. And it would usually start Thursday night. Thursday night, we'd start drinking, Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
2: So this is an ongoing pattern week after week. Yep. When did you start to realize that it wasn't just a social thing that you were actually addicted or dependent on it?
1: Yeah, the weird thing is, the weird thing is, I don't even know. Sometimes I use this addicted language because I was just so messed up with alcohol. But then I look at others now and think, actually, mine wasn't addiction. I was a, I was a massive binge drinker, but it screwed my life up just as much as any addiction. How so? Uh, Look, I went, I actually, I got called the town grot for a long time because we'd go to parties and I would drink so much and get so smashed that to get attention, I would find something to eat or find something to drink that was so outrageous that everyone would laugh at me. And then after a while they started calling me, you know, Marshy, the, oh man, he's psycho. He just, he's the town grot. what
2: What does that mean? The town what? The town
1: grot means the town grub. It means the the guy that would do this ridiculous stuff, and you would, you would almost be gross with what he'd do. I'll probably, for my wife's sake, I don't think I should go into the stories because maybe, maybe you my might have sake, to yeah. edit them out. <laughs> but they were ridiculous. They and and the the more gross they could get, the more attention I got, the more I felt like I was fitting in the environment. And um, someone took me under their wing and saw that I was just the town grot and actually could even make some money from it. So he would- Make some money from it. He would get everyone to- He'd get me to do something outrageous and go around and collect bets for it. And (laughs) then I'd do it, and he'd go and collect the money. And actually, I somehow got some kind of buzz from that. And so that's just escalated just more and more. Then I was getting so drunk that I'd get locked up. The the coppers would pick me up somewhere Mm. drunk and lock me up in the cells overnight. And so this was a- Year after year after year, thing that just got worse and worse. Yeah.
2: Now somehow, while all this was going on, there was a romance in your life.
1: Yeah, I met a girl, um, met a girl, and fell in love, and we lived together for a few years, and got her pregnant, and probably look back now and think, oh my goodness, this was this was a bit that started to really change my life. Got her pregnant, and and she was going to have this baby, and I had no idea how to be a father at this stage I was a mess couldn't look Mm. after myself let alone her or a child and so I said I don't think I can do it will you have an abortion and she Mm. said of course not absolutely not and I said well I can't be a father and so I said I'm out of here and I just decided I'm gonna get out of town get out of Druin and I was able to run to Queensland and, and actually start playing some football in Queensland so I thought this is an answer play some f- mm-hmm. good footy up there. It was a good mm-hmm. standard footy and I'll get away from all my problems and all fixed.
2: Well, there's a wise saying that says, wherever you go, that's where you are. Yep. And that's where you were, but your yep. problems followed you.
1: Yeah, they did. Actually, it was interesting. Got to Queensland. Football was so consuming. We trained three times a week. We, it, was, it was full on that I cut back on the drink and was doing okay and actually felt like I needed to go home and ask her, if she'd give it another go, I was ready to oh, okay. take on responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I the, actually, the club flew me down. I picked her up, and um, she came come up to Queensland. We saw out the pregnancy in Queensland, and she was there to support me playing footy and stuff.
2: So you got the courage eventually.
1: Yep, yep. And our son was born in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like, wow, this is awesome. Life doesn't get any better than this now. Got this precious little boy. He's a few months old. Um I'd cut down the drink. We made the grand final in footy. And so it was a bit of a bubble.
2: Life doesn't get any better than that. No, no, it was good. Living the dream.
1: Um, The dream did change because I said to to my partner at the time, the season's over and I'm really missing country Druin. Do you want to go home? And she was quite happy to go back to family. Her mum and uh, family were in Druin. So we made this probably mistake of we went back to Druin, took our little boy with us. And sadly, I slotted back into... That same old drunk, the little grot. Mm. And, and even though I've got a precious little boy I love to bits, um, the drink become priority again.
0: You're listening to the story. Our guest today is Jeff Marsh sharing his story. Jeff's mother is Helen Marsh, who was our guest last time. Next we'll find out the role Helen played in helping Jeff turn his life around. That and more when we return. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Jeff Marsh sharing his life journey with Eric Scatterbo. Jeff is the son of Helen Marsh, who was our guest last time. At this point in his story, he has just returned to Druin, Victoria, and unfortunately, he has slipped right back into his drinking ways, and his life is on a downward spiral. Yeah, well, see,
1: I don't know whether it, whether it was drawn, whether I was still so insecure that I get back to draw, and all my mates are there. Oh, Mashi's back in town. Yeah, <laughs> um, come and have a drink with us, and I couldn't say no, so I'm back in the pub, leaving my partner, leaving my son, mm. and back drinking with the boys. And I look back and think, oh my goodness, she had every right to leave me, and so she did. She she said, I can't do this. You're not a you're not a father. You just the boys are too important. She left me. She took my little boy. And my life crumbled at that stage.
2: Were you married at this point?
1: No, no, we never got married. Mm-hmm. We just lived together. And so she lived in Druin, so she took off, got herself her own place and took my little boy. And so I'm in my own home, incredibly lonely, now without this precious boy of mine with me every, every day. And so my only answer was to go back to the boys at the pub and say, I'm not coping Ah, oh, Marshy, come up and have a couple of drinks with us. We'll, you know, it'll sort out. It'll be okay tomorrow. And the only answer they really had was, let's just keep drinking and forget about all that stuff. It sorts itself out. Well, it didn't.
2: And I... Um, yeah, I was going to say, how did that yeah, work I
1: Yeah, I got lower and lower and lonelier and lonelier. Mm. Actually, I have a vivid... And this is a long time ago, and I have a vivid recollection of, of actually laying in bed so grieved that I couldn't be with my boy and so lonely that I thought, oh, I could just take my life and actually it would be better to to just get out of here because I just couldn't find a way mm. forward. I wasn't going to get a, get back with this girl. I didn't know how I was going to be a decent dad. The boys didn't have an answer for me. The grog didn't help. Um, it wasn't numbing the pain. And so just to leave this world was an answer. And I thank God that I didn't. But, gee, that's still incredibly clear in my head.
2: Mm. So, how did things finally turn around?
1: So, in a mess, in an absolute mess, I would go back to Mulgrave, to mum, mm-hmm. who'd become a believer at this stage, yep. and I'd go and sit on her freezer, and I'd say, mum, <laughs> my life, <laughs> I still get emotional all mm-hmm. these years later, mum, my life is a mess, and I've got no idea what to do, and I can't bear to be without my boy, and she would, I guess she would start to give me some advice, and... Um, and we'd, you know, I'd, I'd cry on a freezer and, and then I'd go back to drawing, and, um, and I'd go back to drawing, and I'd drink some more. And I think I lost my job because of my messed up life. And I'd come back a few weeks later to mum and sit on her freezer and say, Mum, I'm still a mess. And she would talk to me, um, about her God, about her faith. And she'd say, Jeff, you need a change in your life. And I'd say, I know Mum, but oh, look, I'm really not into that stuff you're into, and so we'd process that. I'd go back to and I'd drink some more. Again, I'd be incredibly lost and lonely and broken. And I'd go back to mum's, sit on the freezer.
2: It sounds like she was incredibly accepting. Yeah. I yeah. mean, obviously, after everything she went through, giving unconditional love to somebody who's made a few mistakes yeah. was part of who she was.
1: Oh, look, she's a champion. And I, I wish I had recognized that at the time. But I look back now and think, my goodness, mum has been through her own stuff over Mm. many years. And here I am now. I had made a complete mess of my life, and here I am um, seeking some advice. This is what she said to me. Jeff, come to church with me. Meet some of the guys at church and see if you can find another way of life. And mum would have worded it totally different to that, but that's what I heard. Mm -hmm. And I said, mum, no, 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 no. I kept saying no back to drawing, come back, she'd ask me again. Eventually, the long story short is that she'd ask me again, and I'd say yes. And I think it's really important I tell you these conditions. Mum, I'll go to church. We sit at the back of church. I don't want to speak to any of those weirdos. <laughs> when church is finished, we're straight out of there. And she'd say, yes, 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 okay, let's do that. Jeff.
2: Just get you in the building.
1: Get me in the building yeah. and let um, whatever happens happen. So first time, got me in the building. We sat at the back. And they've started their worship, their songs, and, and I'm tearing up. And
2: Really? Uh, first Immediately? Day, first day. I yep. thought a lot of people, their first time in a church, it's weird, it's different. Yep. But you started to tear up.
1: Yeah, and I probably couldn't work out what was going on. What I look back now and say is that the, the little boy inside me was really hurting. The mm. exterior macho man that was trying to hold life together. You know, he the little boy was crying out and so when the worship started, somehow the little boy got touched and um and I was sobbing and I'm trying to wipe away my tears so that no one would see mm. and that day was good. And mum would say, You wanna come back and give it another go? And I'd say, Yeah, okay and I come back and now I'm not sure whether it was a fortnight later or I don't know. Again the time doesn't really matter, but I come back and there were more tears and I'd come back and there were more tears. Um uh, and I, I just take a breath. <laughs> like it's still like it was yesterday. Um, and um, some of these people got around me, and they were just so genuine and so awesome that I felt um, I just felt so much love that I was craving for, but not necessarily understanding what I was craving for. And so I kept coming back, and it started to make sense. So there's a bit of time that's gone on. And I was able to get some access with my boy, some some time with him. Mm-hmm. And I actually brought him to church with me. And he's sitting on my knee. Now, he might be, I don't know, maybe 8, 10, 12 months old or something, a little boy. And he's on my knee. And the pastor's saying, "Men out there, you've tried to do life your way and it's not working. Um, I've got some good news for you today. Come and hand it over. There's this loving God that wants to release you from all the pain you've got. Um, come on out. And so now I have no idea how to do all this church stuff, and I have no idea what it looks like to let go to Jesus. But all I knew is that I had to race to that front of the front of the church there, and I had to carry my boy with me up up there and sign up for whatever I'm signing up for. Mm-hmm. And so I went forward, lots of tears, as probably pick up. I'm a bit of a an emotional mess. Um, most of the time and, and so I'm up there Just saying Sign me up Wherever you sign me I need a new life And I want to find my heart again and, uh, and so we did And so that was the day I guess I gave my life to Jesus And said I want to do it your way
2: What do you think it was That that really touched you The deepest
1: um, I reckon mum and dad Did such an awesome job of, of raising us kids That it was so about love and I reckon I've run off for the next however many years and tried to find love in all these other ways and I never found it. And um, obviously you don't find it in in alcohol and you don't find it in the boys, the mates, the ridiculous things we get up to. And I was always so insecure that everyone else could get life sorted out, but Jeff, you're a bit of a nothing.
2: That's what you thought of yourself? Yep. Yep.
1: Um, For a long time. And then... And so when he finally comes and um, and says you're not a nothing, then, wow, yeah, then the light turns on. I, yeah. I guess, yeah. I, guess um, I guess that's what happens when. Not only do you get you know this term born again, but but so something happens on the inside where where you start feeling life and you feel like oh my goodness, there's a way forward. There is hope. And I'll tell you, there's something that I remember clearly is that when I did that. And over the next months and months and months, I, I'd come to church, and I signed up for this thing. I signed up for church. I would regularly come to this church, and I think I started to get access with Daniel every fortnight. Mm-hmm. And so I'd bring him along. And I this is this is really important for me. I said to Mum, "Oh my goodness, I feel like Mum, I'm in a bubble, and it's a good bubble. It's a, it's an amazing bubble. Does it ever burst?" Mm-hmm. And and Mum said. Uh, It doesn't burst. It doesn't have to burst. Um, Some peoples will burst because of their lifestyle and if they step out of this place of being with Jesus. But my bubble has never burst 30 years down the track, and it's never burst. And that's this love bubble. That's this thing between me and Jesus. And obviously Daniel was a massive part of that.
2: Mm. Um, Well, it hasn't burst. No. But it has overflowed. Yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, We're going to get to how – your relationship with the Lord has overflowed into helping others, but first, you had an incident with a famous football player. Yeah. Can you share with us about that?
1: Yeah, and I did. I, I, I probably forgot that because that was just one step back. But So, Gary Ablett Sr., many will know, and um, Gary Ablett Sr. had just had this massive moment of meeting Jesus. Now, Gary was a fairly wild fella, and he, he slotted into on as a wild fella, just like I was starting to slot in. And so, he... He was passionate about his new found faith. And so same footy club, we're there together. I'm as drunk as a skunk. And Gary says, I actually want to talk to you about something. Would you come outside and, and let me talk to you about Jesus and his love? And and could I pray for you? And so I went out there because I knew that I was craving something back mm-hmm. then.
2: Yeah,
1: And so Gary laid hands on me and another one of the footballers. And we had no idea at the time what was going on, but I believe that was so significant Mm -hmm. that God was starting to say, I know your name, and I want you, and I've got a plan for you. And so when my mother finally introduced me to church, to faith, and to ultimately to to Christ, it was all these seeds that had been sown already. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's why there was this massive bang all, all in one moment where God had just started to let it explode.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop Jeff Marsh's story right there because we've run out of time, but... We invite you to join us again next time to find out the rest of his incredible story. Next time will be part four in our special six-part series focusing on how God works through the lives of broken people and how God chooses some of the most unlikely people to do the most remarkable things in his kingdom. Meanwhile, if you want to learn more about Jeff's story, some of it is in the book his mother Helen Marsh wrote called Up Out of Egypt. So if you want to find out more about that book, the website is upoutofegypt.com. That's up. Out of egypt.com And speaking of the most unlikely people doing great things for God's kingdom next time we'll hear how Jeff goes on to become the founder of his own ministry and helps other people who have gone through similar experiences. He just has a heart for helping broken people. Well until next time when we'll hear part 4 in our 6 part series I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today Next time on The Story 14 years ago
1: A lot of heroin on the streets, a lot of overdoses, a lot of bag snatches. a lot of bergs. And so he's got all of the ingredients to attract broken people to it. And so the vision, I guess, was can we plonk ourselves right in the middle of that, sat at a cafe and said, God, lead us to the one person that God was already working in.
0: Jeff Marsh has a heart for the downtrodden in society because he's experienced brokenness himself. He's the founder of Elisha Care, a community in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne that focuses on restoring hope, value and purpose in broken people's lives. We'll hear more of Jeff's story next time. The Story, just another way vision is connecting faith to life.